is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything here on this show. And you're not going to get these stories anywhere else on radio or anywhere else, period, I think. And joining us for the hour, author, writer, and raconteur, Jerry Eisenberg. And I've been reading Jerry's columns since I was a kid, growing up in, well, not too far from Newark, New Jersey, and reading the Star-Ledger. And there's nothing he hasn't written about when it comes to American sports. He's been inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame, the National Sportscasters and Sportswriters Hall of Fame. And my goodness, he's written about everything. And indeed, the envy of my life, he's covered 50 Kentucky Derbies. And, well, you know how I feel about horse racing, and that's just one of the great days in American sports. Is, always will be, always has been. But today, we're talking to him about his latest book, Once They Were Giants, The Golden Age of heavyweight boxing, and we had done that hour on Sylvester Stallone. And if you remember, Stallone focused in on one story in particular that made Rocky come to life, and that was that Chuck Wepner fight, the Bayonne Bleeder versus Muhammad Ali. That story, so many more in this great hour with one of our great storytellers. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Oh, please, my pleasure. You bet. Jerry, we like to start off always with the writers themselves. You have some great stuff here and some great stories about you growing up as a kid. Talk about what it was like being a Jewish kid in a tough neighborhood and growing up Jewish and wanting to even think about writing about sports when there weren't a lot of Jewish athletes in sports at the time. No, there were very few. The one that got the most, actually, there was the great Benny Leonard. You know, my father once in a while spoke of him. And and uh, I was really a child and uh, really an infant, and so uh, uh, in fact on the Lower East Side he sort of integrated America for all those Jewish immigrants. Uh, they called him the Great Benna, B-E-N-N-A-H, because that was your language problem, and uh, he was one. But what the one that caught fire in my house when I was eight years old was uh, Hank Greenberg, came out of the Bronx, challenged Babe Ruth's home run record and came within two of, of, of tying it, and was amazing because the last week or eight days of the season, and they walked him about six or seven times because they, he was Jewish. They didn't want him to break the record. And also, no pitcher wanted to be the guy against who he broke the record. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it was very interesting in those days. Um, it was tough times, very tough times for Jews in America. I was born in 1930, so... Um, it depends where you lived, but in cities uh, which all were structured by neighborhood, Irish neighborhood, Jewish neighborhood, it was a tough time. And at that time, Father Coughlin, um, the radio priest of the air from Royal Oak, Michigan, was a virulent anti-Semite. He published a uh, newspaper called Social Justice, and they sold it in front of, uh, you know, uh, Protestant and Catholic churches. Uh, but the thing about it was there was an outfit in Boston called the Silver Shirts. They, you know, copied the black shirts of, uh, of uh, Mussolini and the brown shirts of Hitler. And um, they had rubber truncheons and the whole trappings. They would fly down occasionally to Newark to stand guard over the guys selling uh, social justice for the colonist paper. And I lived on Shanley Avenue, and on the corner was... Uh, Blessed Sacrament Church, which really had nothing to do with this, except that's where they chose after Mass to sell the papers. And I remember as a kid, uh, maybe nine years old, maybe eight, standing in front of the candy store, 
and across the street on my side of the main drag was a cop. And some guy came by, and he probably was Jewish. He said something about Father Coggan. He yelled it to them. And these guys came out and began to beat the crap out of him with their rubber crutches, and the cop turned around and walked away. Well, there was a lot of that. When I was a kid, I saw a huge billboard in Morris County, New Jersey, in front of a hotel, and it said, this is a restricted hotel. No Jews or dogs allowed. Um, you know, uh, this was something that affected at one time or another every immigrant population, which may be why they banded together and tried to live in the same neighborhoods. I think that's right. You know, uh, George Will had written a great column on Yogi Berra on the day that Yogi Berra died, and you and George Will probably don't agree on much, but baseball, no, we don't. Jerry... But, you know, he, he, he made a point of saying that, that, uh, that Yogi Berra grew up in a place in St. Louis called Dago Hill, and I'm half Italian, and my, my grandfather regaled about the kind of discrimination he faced. And it was just a part of, sort of a part of growing up as an immigrant uh, oh, in the United absolutely. States. And, and I don't mean to cut you off, but absolutely. And I wrote a piece today, Yogi died, Yogi and I are close friends, about the hill itself. And except for a little time away to play minor league baseball until he got to the Yankees, Yogi Berra lived his entire life within six or seven square miles, which was the hill. Uh, he was married on the hill. His, his, I've seen a picture of him playing the outfield barefoot on the hill. And I always asked him, who who did you like to play against? You know, and he said, well, he named a guy, I think it was Adams or something, a team. He said, uh, we like to beat them all the time because they're the ones that had uniforms and shoes. <laughs> so true, so true. When we come back, folks, we're going to continue with more of Jerry Eisenberg. Once there were giants, the golden age of heavyweight boxing, as always, when we have on writers. Though we love to know who we're talking to and where they're from, who their parents were. One more segment on Jerry and his personal life. And then we're going to dig into the book, In My Goodness, from Ali and Frazier, the giants there. Straight back to the earlier giants in this sport. And that's Floyd Patterson and others. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Jerry Eisenberg for the hour. Again, his book, Once There Were Giants, The Golden Age of Heavyweight Boxing. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Jerry Eisenberg. Jerry, I wanted to read one little thing from your book, and again, it's Once There Were Giants, The Golden Age of Heavyweight Boxing, and this gets back to you being a young man. And by the way, there's an N-word for African Americans. It's a terrible word. And there's a K-word for Jewish folks, and I think we know what it is. 
And there's an encounter here with a sign, and it, it read, All Jews are kites, it said. And here's what you read. Here's what you wrote. I was only eight years old, but there were some things I knew as gospel. One of them was the fact that I was Jewish. The other was that I was reasonably sure I couldn't fly. When I asked my father what it meant that night, he told me, quote, First, it means that it was written by an illiterate moron, which most anti-Semites are. Second, the word is kike. Put up your fists. No, not like that. Heaven help us. Higher. Closer to your chin. Good. Now listen carefully. If anyone, and I mean anyone, calls you that to your face, I want you to smile at him so he relaxes and then hit him in the mouth with a right hand. And if you don't finish with the left hook I taught you, don't bother coming home. My goodness, what great advice from a father, Jerry. Uh, I, I hope he didn't mean the second part, but I know he meant the first part. He's an interesting guy. My father was a minor league baseball player, I don't know, five, six, seven years. Never never, never made the majors. Uh, and uh, he would tell me, you know, sometimes in, in those days, he played in a couple of leagues where he was the only Jew in the league. So he learned a lot firsthand about anti-Semitism. And um, he he never looked for a fight, but he never ducked one. And he was a guy who led by example, and he was insistent. Uh, one of the things he said to my sister and myself was, nobody comes home and says, I didn't get the job because I was Jewish. And nobody, he said, it's a religion, not an alibi. And and unless, in fact, he said, I'll never accept that excuse, and he never did. It's a religion, not an alibi. What a great line. I want to read one more thing to you, Jerry, about about your, your childhood, and particularly, I think this may be your first encounter with fights. Uh, tonight, my father said, I don't want to hear about any of those radio shows you like, your family would like to listen to radio. Tonight, he said, we are all going to listen to the Lewis Schmeling fight. And that, of course, is Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling. Lewis, the American, African-American boxer. Schmeling, the German boxer. This colored man, your dad said, is fighting for us as Americans, for us as Jews, and for all the colored people in America. And then there followed a lecture on Hitler, the Nazis, and the Jews, and what he feared was about to happen in Europe, and who knew where else. And this was 1938, Jerry. Take us back there. Was this your first encounter with this love affair with boxing? Oh, absolutely. In fact, that chapter is called The Accidental Boxing Fan. And and, uh, and it's interesting because I got to know Schmeling very well later on. I got to, and of course I knew Lewis very well later on. Lewis was not fighting for America. He was fighting because this guy knocked him out two years earlier, and that's why he was so intense about it. And Schmeling was not fighting for Hitler. He was fighting because he was trying to win back the heavyweight championship. And, and by the way, uh, Schmeling uh, was not a Nazi, very clearly not a Nazi, which is why they sent him into paratroopers to Crete where he broke his ankle. And uh, he disappointed Joseph Goebbels very, very much. But the interesting thing about that, my father is ho- standing on a street and he's hollering at the radio. There's no television in those days. And so I'm standing on my feet and I'm hollering too. And he's throwing punches and I'm ineffectually throwing punches at the air. And my sister, who never opened her mouth about anything, is sitting there very quietly. And my mother is not quite sure whether she approves or disapproves of this conduct by her son emulating his father. Anyway, 30, 40 years later, I'm in the all-black town of Grambling, Louisiana, where the all-black college, at that time all-black, of Grambling State 
college, who was then college. Uh, and I'm there to do, I'm the first white reporter to write about gambling, football. Eddie Robinson, the coach, became a lifelong friend of mine. Anyway, I'm in the campus men's store owned by a man named, named Calvin Wilkerson. And for some reason, we get on to Joe Lewis as a unifying force in the black community. And I tell him the story about my father. And he said, you know, I took you around the corner to Gallo's Barbershop because it's Friday and they all talk about the football game tomorrow. And I knew you wanted to do that for what you're working on. And uh, I was in Gallo's Barbershop when smelling Fort Lewis. And I was in the back room and we were all huddled around the radio just like your family was. The only difference was after the fight, your dad was home and... We had to sleep in the barbershop because the Klan was out that night. And he said to me, tell me one thing. Was your dad yelling? Was he cursing when he was? I said, well, only every third word. And he said, we were doing the same thing. And he said, you know something? I, I never met your old man. I, I think I would like him. But on that night, he and I were brothers under the skin. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. You know, we just did an hour on the life of Louis Zamperini, too. Uh, and, and what a story there, too. And what an iconoclastic story. What a... What a remarkable story captured on film correctly. And I'm shocked, Jerry, there's never been a movie made about, not a proper movie made, about the Lois Schmeling fight. Has, has there been? Yeah, there were some documentaries made. Uh, uh, no, but I'll tell you something that most Americans, most, most people don't know. What, it was so intense the night of that fight. First of all, it was hot it was in, July, in June. Secondly, every Jew in the garment center was at that fight. Thirdly, all the German-American Bund folks from Yorkville section of New York, they were at the fight. And what really lit the fire was, in those days, papers used to put out extras when it was fast-breaking news. Yep. That day, 22 German-Americans, not Germans, German-Americans were arrested as spies for Nazi Germany. So the, 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 the arena was like a cauldron. And, it, and this is what we're talking about, by the way, folks, the 1938... A championship fight, and these were world championship fights. This oh, is yeah. when the whole world was watching boxing, or more importantly, listening. There was no TV then, and people would gather around radios. Again, 1938, Hitler has not quite started World War II yet, but he's on the cusp of doing it, and right. folk, folks who knew better knew what was coming. Talk about your, your, your rise from this young man, Jerry, to getting this idea that somehow someone would want to read anything you had to write or listen to anything you had to say. Where, where did that come from, this, this need, this desire to write? And who were some key mentors in your life well, who helped you get there? in my life, I can tell you very quickly, my father was number one, because he always, always led by example. I remember one day, I was nine years old, he said, go sweep the sidewalk, which in Newark, we all swept our sidewalks. So I took a broom, I went outside, he's watching me. And I finished sweeping the garbage into the gutter, and I turned around, he says, where are you going? I said, well, it's Saturday, I'm going to go play ball. He said, you're not going to play ball. You know where our garbage can is. That's the Eisenberg garbage. That's not the city's garbage. I don't care if you make 22 trips with a dustpan, put it where it belongs in the garbage can. And I said, why? And he looked at me, and he said, well, I'm going to... He looked at me like a Talmudic scholar would look at a poor, misinformed student who couldn't get the same Talmudic chapter right 30 times. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you once... And here's the deal. You know, you, you know, he said, there used to be a time when all of the saloons had bologna and eggs and bread on the counter as a free lunch. 
and that brought in the customers. They drank the beer, they drank the booze, and it paid for the. It made money. He said, but after a while, they realized they're going to come anyway. We don't have to do this. The last bar to have a free lunch was the White Lowe's Bar. And I'm telling you right now, the White Lowe's Bar is closed. Ain't no free lunch in America. Pick up the damn garbage. <laughs> and when I go, as long as I lived under his roof, when I would say about something he wanted me to do, and I would say why, he'd look at me and say, the White Lowe's Bar is closed. And I would always get the message. You know, Jerry, the first mentor. There, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's the first mentor. Right, okay. Other mentors too, Jerry. Yeah. Then there was Stanley Woodward, who was the greatest. Was the greatest sports editor, the greatest editor, and one of the greatest human beings who ever lived. He was my sports editor at the Ledger. When I left the Ledger with him to go to the Herald Tribune, which he was going back to, he was a sports editor for me there. And he was a guy. I never knew what he thought of me, and he was so hard on me. He. I, I, he sent me to my first spring training, and boy, I, I thought I, I was going to write like Ernest Hemingway. I was real, I, this is a big thing for me. I was a kid, and, and just out of the army, uh, Korea, and and uh, I went out there, and I was rhapsodizing, making the typewriter in those days sing. And I get a phone call. I want to see you in two days in my office. Well, I'm not. Through. You will be too if you don't come back. So I go back. I don't know what I did. I said, Stanley, what what. Did, what, what, what is this about? He said, who's going to play second base for the Giants? I said, well, it's a good question. There's six guys. He said, I didn't ask it. I asked who's going to play second. Listen to me, kid, and learn. I don't give a damn about the painted desert. I don't care that the lost Dutchman's mine was only eight miles from where the Giants were training. I want to know who's going to play second base, and so does everybody else who reads the Herald Tribune. Now, you go sit down, and, and, and when you figure it out, we'll talk about it. I sat in that desk for three months, and I said, boy, he was so hard on me. And he sort of brought me along, brought me along. And then he wrote his second book, which was not very good because he was dying of cancer. And in the thing he says, he writes a note to me on the flyleaf, and it says, For Jerry Eisenberg, the logical successor to McGeehan, Rice, and Smith. Well, let it have a warm your heart, Jerry, hearing that from a guy who was tough on you, but he loved you, and that's why he was tough on you. And by the way, guys were just tough on guys back then. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Jerry Eisenberg, for the hour, his latest book, Once There Were Giants, The Golden Age of heavyweight boxing. More after these messages. American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Jerry Eisenberg, his latest book, Once There Were Giants, The Golden Age of Heavyweight Boxing, and Jerry has written about sports, I think, better than anyone else in this country. I'm a little biased. I grew up reading Jerry, but I've read everybody, and I think his mentor was right. Uh, Jerry is one of the greats and one of the great writers, and he's seen all of sports today for the hour of focus, though, on his book and sports, because they once were giants. Talk about the first giant in boxing you ever really covered, Jerry. Well, um, if you go by, see, in those days, we always knew who the champion was. You had somebody else on the street with the heavyweight champion saying, I don't know, which means there is no heavyweight champions. But, you know, there's 19 organizations, there's 27 champions, it means nothing. Right. But in those days, going back now to 
when Floyd Patterson uh, became champion, um, he he uh, and Customato, the guy who had Tyson, was the guy who developed him. He was not a giant because he didn't fight everybody, but he held a universally acclaimed title when he fought Sonny Liston. That was the first giant. And Sonny knocked him out in record time in both fights. And Sonny was a great, great fighter, and his career is sullied because people think that the two fights with Ali were fixed, which they were not, and I can explain that to you later. But the big thing about, about Sonny was, he, you know, I learned oh, a great lesson from Sonny. I learned that illiteracy and ignorance are not the same thing. Sonny was illiterate. He was certainly not ignorant. And guys in my business have a habit. They'll ask a question. And if a guy stops to think or pauses in his answer, they'll say, well, I meant by that. I started to say that when I was interviewing Sonny after the first of Patterson fight. A rematch was scheduled. For Miami, which they moved it, they couldn't sell tickets. But the big thing was this: Hialeah Racetrack, which is gone now. If you went to Hialeah Racetrack, you had to really want to get there. You crossed all these highways and these clover leaves and everything. So Patterson opens his training there for the rematch. Twenty-five hundred people show up at Hialeah Park. The next day, I go to see Sonny. He's in a kosher hotel in Miami Beach. I'm sure the bill was never paid. And he's training by the pool. And by actual count, there are six people watching him. And as I'm getting engrossed, he's getting hit in the stomach with a medicine ball and a band. And the record is playing Night Train. And this loudspeaker interrupts and says, uh, Ramon and Ramona will be giving cha-cha lessons in the boom, boom, boom later on today. <laughs> and, I mean, this is it's a farce. Yep. So... I've talked to him afterwards. We're, we're looking at the water, the ocean, and everything. And he, he's he got to set the tone. You know, I smoked a pipe in those days. He says to me, you could stay, because his wife said, you better talk to him. His wife really ran the, ran the show. So he said, and he's got to save face. He said, well, you could stay, but the pipe got to go. So I threw the pipe in the ocean. I said, is that far enough? And I said, to tell him about the 2,500 guys and the six people here. And how do you feel about that, Sonny? And he looked at me with that hard guy stare, which I learned really was just a facade, uh, and looked and looked. And I said, oh, my God, he's not going to answer. But I didn't say another word. And suddenly he said to me, and it's the exact quote, because you can't forget quotes like this if you're a newspaper guy. If this be the olden days, when the tribe followed the chief into battle, I'd be scared. This one will be shorter than the first one. <laughs> so he was, uh, none of that impressed him. And by the way, just to set the context, Jerry, for folks not listening, yeah. back then there was just one belt. Now oh, there's yeah. three, four, you can't even count. And like you yeah. said, if you can't name the heavyweight champion, then there isn't a heavyweight champion. Exactly. And back then, everybody knew, everybody watched the fights. Husbands, wives, they gathered, they'd go to Madison Square Garden if they lived in New York. And this was the sport. It was the unifying sport of the country. Hard to imagine now, like horse racing, that these were once giant sports in this country. Yeah. But they were. And these were giant characters as well. Uh, let's talk about uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, because the Liston-Ali fight brought different generations into battle. Different Absolutely. styles. Different uh, personalities. Talk about this fight. Set it up for us. I will. But I'd like to say something about that first. And it's this. I always try to put, I've written 13 books, I always try, anyone I write in the column, I've always tried to put things into context with what's happening in America. 
And there are two social themes in this book, which I think are very interesting. One is the influence of the mob, what it meant, how it was done, and how it left. And the other is Vietnam. And Ali is not the only fighter associated with Vietnam. George Foreman ran around the ring in Mexico City with a little American flag in his hand. And, and Joe Frazier was brutalized by a large segment of the population, which was against the, the, the Vietnam the Vietnamese War. And, and, uh, and I think rightly so. But nevertheless, therefore, Frazier, who is in Ali's way, would have to be for the war in their minds. And, and they really were very unfair to him. And Joe was a hell of a guy. And Joe believed what he believed. But anyway, Ali, his, people say to me, was he the greatest heavyweight fighter? And I say, probably not. In my mind, it's Joe Lewis, number one, Marciano, number two. And Ali is in there anywhere from three to five in terms of that. But in terms of impact, he, he had the greatest impact on America and the world of any heavyweight champion. I knew him very well. Um, I, when I was inducted in the Hall of Fame, one of the things in the Boxing Hall of Fame, one of the things I said was, my wife, who was sitting there, she can attest to the fact that I can't keep a friend for five days. This guy was my friend for 50 years. We traveled the world. I stood up for him about Vietnam, and I did it because of the principle, not because of him. And 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 uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, we got six thousand. I, I had a rule. I was in forty-three papers, and I had a rule: nobody forwarded any mail. I don't want to read it. I don't care. And they did forward. There were six thousand letters, and I think one of them was on my side. My sister never wrote. One of them was on my side, and I, I like to say the guy wrote and he said, "I apologize for writing in crayon, but in this institution, they won't let me use sharp pointed pencils." <laughs> pencils, and and so uh, it, it was. It was very tough. I'm writing something in, in my living room, in my office at home, and my son runs in, and he says, Dad, come out, come out quick. I run out, and two guys with sledgehammers are knocking out my windshield. So the cops come that night, and I was a strong guy. I was a strong guy for gun control. I was a strong guy, and, and, and I was able to write about it because I did have a lot of latitude. I was strong about Ali. I was the first one about Ali. Coastal learned from me. And, 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 um, uh, all issues that were maybe were not very popular. I was on many of those sides. And uh, the cops say to me, well, well, who do you think might be? A... I said, you know, think about Sunday morning in a delicatessen. Take a number and eventually it'll get around to the guy who knocked out the windshield. I don't know. <laughs> Two weeks later, I'm driving to work. And I'm going to, there's a traffic light. And I'm going to cross the street and park in front of my office. I was driving a gray Monte Carlo. Another gray Monte Carlo comes down that street, which is Court Street, turns in and parks. The guy gets out of the car. Two guys run over, and they break his windshield out with sledgehammers. The guy's standing there with his mouth open. I'm laughing. The light changes. I pull in, and I say to the guy, listen, I don't know how to explain this. Don't get too upset. It's, it was all about business. <laughs> right. It was a tough, tough time to be on his side. But on the other hand, he was a guy I saw him do. You know, people don't understand who he really was. And, and and I say is because it's hard for me to say that he's gone. I cried for a week, and I knew it was coming for years. Uh, this is a guy loved little children and loved older people. We're in New York, and we're on a – he's got to fight Shavers, and it's the old Statler Hilton Hotel, and the news is on. Well, um, yeah, there's a story about a Jewish old-age home in the Bronx. 
this is a guy who who his critics always said was anti-Semitic, and uh, they're going to evict these people. It's December, in the snow and whatever else, because they can't make the the rent and the mortgage or whatever it is, and they they got a deal for next year with some foundation which can't give them money until next year. So they don't know what they're going to do. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. More with Jerry Eisenberg. More about Muhammad Ali, too. There are quite a few other great stories here. We'll touch on even Mike Tyson. And the book is Once There Were Giants, The Golden Age of Heavyweight Boxing. We're talking about Muhammad Ali right now. And coming up, we'll talk a bit about George Foreman and bring it straight up to the Tyson era. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return with Jerry Eisenberg, sports writer, raconteur, his latest book, Once There Were Giants, The Golden Age of Heavyweight Boxing. And Jerry, you were in the middle of a story. Let's just keep it going. Well, so he, he, he says to me, is this really happening, these people being evicted? And I said, it's America, that's what's happening. He says to Kilroy, Gene Kilroy, who was his business manager unofficially, and really we did a great job, kept the, the leeches as far away as possible and ran the camps. And he said, Gene, get the checkbook, we're going to go up there. So we go up to the place, and we, it's snowing like hell. And ring the bell, the rabbi says, what are you doing here? He said, what I'm doing is getting snowed on. Let me in and I'll tell you why I'm here. In we go. He says, uh, I heard the thing about the pot. Well, it's true. It's true. It's absolutely. And these people are picking around corners with walkers and everything else. And Ali's very moved by it. And the rabbi says, uh, we just going to go. And he said, okay, how much do you need to make it till we can get that grant? And he tells him. He says to Kilway, write a check. Kilway says, I don't know who to make it out for. Make it out to the Jews. I don't know who these people are. So the guy tells him probably the name of the place, and they make it out. I can tell you right now, the check was in excess of 100000 And Ali, then Ali becomes Ali again because he's always on stage. He couldn't get off. He takes the five steps away, like, like Cecil B. DeMille is saying, okay, everybody on stage, we're going to do the exit scene now. Yep. He turns around, makes five steps, turns, whirls, points to the rabbi, and says, now next time, go to the Jews for the money. They got a lot of it. <laughs> I, I mean, it was priceless. He, he 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 cared. This guy, people say, why did he fight Holmes? He must have been broke. He, must, he wasn't broke. He fought Holmes because Ali was an addict. Pray, people's adulation and people's caring was his opium. Yep. And yep. he had to go back. And the night before that fight, which was a disgrace, um, we're in his room, and he says, well, you don't think I can win? I said, Muhammad, let, let's not talk about that, because you're going to fight tomorrow. I, I have no input. Who knows what you can do? And he looked at me, and he looked at me, and he said, really? And he ripped his shirt off, and he's standing there, and he's cut like he was when he fought uh, listed for the title. It's amazing. The only thing I didn't know was he was on a diet of, uh, of diuretics, and he had no strength at all. And that night it was a horrible thing. And 
what's his name said, uh, I'm, I jump up and I scream at Richard Green, the referee, which is the most unprofessional act of my life. I say, Richard, stop it. You're going to get him killed. And a couple of hours later, they did stop it. So now it's like three in the morning. And I'm walking around Caesar's Palace, and I went in. Sinatra was talking about what a great man Ali was. I said, I don't want to hear this crap from him. And I walk out, and I gamble, and I lose, and I lose a little more. Now I'm pissed off. I go to the men's room, and an African-American guy, an old guy, is handing out towels. And I say an old guy. Today, I'd probably be 20 years older than him at that time. Right. But I was a kid, so, yeah. you know. And I said to him, you mind if I ask you a question? He said, no, no, go ahead. Did you bet on this fight? He said, absolutely. I said, who did you bet on? He looked at me, and it was the greatest tribute I ever heard to Ali. He said, I, vote, I bet on the man who gave me dignity. And beyond that, what happened was an odd thing. This is I live out here near Vegas. This is a town of hustlers and rustlers and who knows what else. And we know whenever there's a big event, a fight or a basketball game or whatever, the big money comes in on Friday and then Saturday, the day of the fight, because that's when the wise guys look at the odds a second time. Yep. And, and the only time in the history of Las Vegas, the little people change the line. It's a $50 bets. Every waitress, every cab driver, every cleaning woman, every valet parker, they all bet their 50 bucks on Ali, and in two casinos, it was even money wow. at fight time. What a story. Yeah, it's usually the heavy hitters who come in and alter the odds, and they wait till the last minute to get yeah, well, the best no, no, possible they bet, rate. They bet early, and they try to catch a middle. You know, bet one way, and then if the odds change enough, they bet the other Flip way. It. yep. And, and the thing about, I will say one thing, Zaire, I have to tell you this, because you can't talk about Ali without it. This is the way I will always remember him, always. He beats Foreman. There's an African rainstorm. If the fight had been, if the rain had been half an hour earlier, there'd have been no fight. It's 4.30 in the morning because of the satellite. It was in the theaters. He goes back to the hotel, to, well, this military compound we're staying at. We go back an hour later, and I'm with Dave Anderson from the Times. And I say, Dave, it was just such a rush and everything. I'd like to, I want to get you a little bit more for the follow tomorrow. I'm going to go, you want to go, we'll look for him. He said, there's 30,000 acres on this military thing. Where, where are we going to, I said, we're going to find him. We're going to find him by the river, because that's him. We go down by the river, and there he is. He's at the edge of the Congo River, and he's staring across what used to be French Congo. And it's important to this story to understand he doesn't know we're there. So he's without a, in his mind, he's totally without an audience. And he's staring and he's staring. Oh, we can't quite hear. Is he yelling? We don't know what he's doing. Suddenly he shoots his arms up in the air in the Rocky pose. And this is before the Rocky movie was made. And he stays there. And then he puts him down. He turns. He walks. And he sees us. And he says, fellas, don't ask me what tonight meant to me. It was the most important night of my life, and I don't think I could explain it to you right. And I've always remembered, whenever, when he died, when, when, when things were bad, when, I've always remembered him standing there with his arms toward the sky, not, with no yes-men, no audience around him. And in that moment, to me, he was, all, he was then the king of the world, and that's the way he stays in my mind. And that's a beautiful story, Jerry. And I think anyone who got or had a tough time or was lucky enough to watch the memorial service for Ali, yeah. knew the breadth and depth of the number of people he touched across faiths. I mean, you had rabbis, you had pastors, you had atheists, you had every walk of humanity 
talking about how Ali touched their lives, and there's a perfect case there. He wasn't even trying to touch your life, Jerry, well, but, but no, he did. We were friends. We were absolutely friends, and I, and I say that in every sense of the word. We only had one time when we had an argument, and it was totally one-sided. He was yelling at me. It was up in Toronto. He was going to fight George Cavallo. I went up there. I went to Sully's AC gym off Lansdowne Street, a real gym. You could, the windows were so dirty you couldn't see out of them. Perfect. I walk in there, and there's a 17-year-old kid banging away in a heavy bag and nobody else. And I say, where's everybody? And he points to the back. I go in the back. Ali's laying on his stomach getting a massage from Luis Saria, the Cuban exile. And he says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, there's a fight. They told me, he said, you know it ain't no fight. I said, well, I'll tell you the truth, Mohammed. I want to see if you're going to go home. I know you must be aware that a lot of young men are up here with political asylum because they do not believe in the Vietnam War. I want to know if you're going home. He jumped off the rubbing table. He got in my face, and he's yelling at me. And he's yelling something like this. That's my birth home. Nobody's going to chase me out. You know me better than that. How dare you say that? And he was furious. And in that moment, I was convinced if everything failed, he would go to jail. Yep. And and by the way, for folks who don't know, when Ali decided to resist the draft, uh, he was at the top of the mountain, and he oh, gave yeah. he gave up everything, Jerry. And so wherever you stood, and I wherever you stood at the time, I, why you wouldn't have at least understood the principle? I mean, he was willing to pay the price. He wasn't saying, "Hey, give me a little furlough, and I'll go a little do do a little tour, slap me on the wrist, then I can keep fighting." He paid the price, Jerry. He paid it, and I'll tell you, the only commercial he ever had came afterwards, one commercial his whole life. How much would this guy be worth in commercials today now that he's revered? One commercial, and it was for a bug spray. That's it. That's unbelievable. And you've got George Foreman selling grills and everything else in the world. my man. And and George is your man. And by the way, you can read about George Foreman in this book. I wanted to hit one little thing towards the end, because it's a great little story. we got about two minutes left, Jerry. And it has to do with pride. Towards the end of the book, you talk about the pride of these guys. And you were talking about one particular scene with Evander Holofield and Mike Tyson. It's the famous fight where Tyson takes off a piece of Holofield's ear. Right. And it could have been over right there. I mean, all Holofield's corner had to do is say, that's it. Talk about Holofield's reaction to the well, idea the, of the not fighting. came over and he said, listen, I didn't realize he bit you twice. I'm giving you this fight and you can have the title. If you want to, you, you want to take it right now. And, 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 and the trainer said, take it, we'll be the champions. And Holofield said, bullshit. Put that mouthpiece back in my mouth. I'm going to kill that MMM. Yep, and I'm going to knock that son of a bitch out, is what you wrote right here, and a couple of other choice words as well. We're talking to Jerry Eisenberg, and we got to have Jerry back for a celebration of Muhammad Ali for an hour um, on the day of uh, Muhammad's birthday. Jerry, we would love to have you back and maybe come up with your three or four best stories, and maybe even do a reading of your of your final and tribute column to him, because sometimes a conversation doesn't quite touch a perfectly written column. I'd, I'd love to do it, and I would suggest the anniversary of his death in June. I think that's perfect, Jerry. Let's call it a date, me and you, for the anniversary of Muhammad Ali. And folks, if you love boxing, if you love great storytelling, once there were giants, the golden age of heavyweight boxing, I think also we'll have to have Jerry back for every Kentucky Derby. Because anyone who's covered all of them, well, he understands, well, he understands what's smart, smart special, and blessed in this world, because there is nothing like a day at Churchill Downs in in that part of the year and that time of the year when the big big horses, all the three-year-olds, are running around the track one time, one and a half times. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us. 
my pleasure. You bet. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series. We brought you the incredible life stories of folks like Mario Andretti, Ed Renzi, and by the way, Ed went from making 85 cents an hour at McDonald's, rose all the way up to be the CEO there. So started at the minimum wage, right up to CEO. And Mario Andretti, my goodness, what a story. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, go into the search bar and hit Mario Andretti, or go to the American Dreamers segments under topics and you won't believe his life story it does not get better as an american story by the way we also brought you justice scalia's story when he passed away and one of his best friends we learned in that story was judge and justice ruth bader ginsburg one from the right one from the left and yet they were dear friends a model for all americans to follow a coming together of sorts and today we bring you the life story of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was born on this day in history in 1933. But you're about to be surprised by this fascinating life of the second woman ever to be on the Supreme Court. Sandra Day O'Connor from Arizona was the first. And Ginsburg is also the first Jewish woman on the Supreme Court, a twofer. For the hour, we'll be bringing you highlights of her interview with the Academy of Achievement's terrific podcast, What It Takes. She first talked about the influence of her mother. My mother was a voracious reader, and one gift that she gave me was loving to read. My favorite memory was sitting on her lap. She would read books to me. We had a daily, a, a weekly excursion to the public library, and she would leave me in the library in the children's section, have her hair done, and then picked me up and I had my three or four books for the week. Ruth went to Cornell University and met her husband, Marty, there. And she said that he was the very first man she dated who actually cared that she had a brain. And he also cared enough to try to teach her to drive, a Herculean task. I learned to drive um, in, at Cornell. I practiced on Marty's gray Chevrolet. I failed, I failed the driver's test five times. <laughs> I had to get a second learner's permit. <laughs> so and Marty having, having infinite patience when I was learning to drive, then when we were married, he would never allow me to drive with, if he was in the car uh, unless he was deathly ill, unless he had a gout attack. <laughs> <laughs> 
On June 23, 1954, Ruth and Marty got married. We were married in Marty's home. And his mother took me into the bedroom, her bedroom, and said, Dear, I'd like to tell you the secret of a happy marriage. Yes, what is the secret? It helps sometimes to be a little deaf. And I found that advice, it stood me in very good stead, not only in uh, a wonderful marriage that lasted well over half a century, but in every workplace I've served dealing with my faculty colleagues when I was a law teacher, and even now with my colleagues on the Supreme Court. When an unkind word is said, a thoughtless word, best to tune out. Best to tune out. Great advice, by the way, because it'll pass. It'll pass. And it might have just been said in the heat of the moment. Soon after their marriage, they had their first child, Jane, and later both enrolled at Harvard Law School in 1956. Ruth was the only mom at Harvard Law and one of only nine women out of a class of 500. The nine of us were greeted by the dean, Dean Aaron Griswold, at a dinner he held in his home. He invited the nine women, and each of us had a faculty escort. Uh, My escort was Herbert Wexler, later my colleague at Columbia. He was a man who looked more like God than anyone I'd ever seen. (laughs) I was totally taken with him, but, but intimidated because he was so brilliant. Anyway, we had a meal. It was not a memorable meal, and there was no wine because the dean was a teetotaler. And then he had the chairs in his living room arranged in a semicircle and asked each of us in turn to say what we were doing at the Harvard Law School, occupying a seat that could be held by a man. And most of us were embarrassed by the question, but Years later, when the dean became a friend, I realized what he was trying to do. The dean was not known for his sense of humor. Harvard didn't admit women until 1950-51, was the first year the law school admitted women. There were still doubting Thomases on the faculty, and the dean wanted to be armed with stories from the women themselves about what they would do with a, with a law degree. So that's why he asked the question. Of course, my, the, the women in my class didn't exactly comprehend that at the time. But so, one of them gave him a perfect answer. Mine was far from perfect. But, but this was Flora Schnall. She had a distinguished career as a lawyer. She said, Dean Griswold, there are nine of us. Well, really, Ruth Ginsburg doesn't count for this purpose. So there are eight. And there are over 500 of 
them. What better place to find a man? <laughs> and the dean, I think, was horrified by that answer. But <laughs> she, she was the only one who treated it with the way it should have been treated. You bet. She just teased him. She just teased him and went on and did what she had to do. Those were not the good old days, by the way. And now women have every access to law schools. They didn't back then. And today there are more women than men in law schools. Go figure that. And that's progress. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the American Dreamers segment. We've done Justice Antonin Scalia. And we need to do his best friend on the court, Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg. More on her incredible life story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our American Dreamers segment with the story of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was born on this day in history in 1933. My goodness, those numbers really are staggering. When she went to Harvard Law, she was one of only nine women out of 500 students and the only mom. And times have changed. Well, here is Ruth Bader Ginsburg on why she studied in bathrooms instead of at the library with the rest of the students. Cornell in the early 50s was a great, considered a great school for girls because there were four men to every woman. It was a strict quota, quota system, yeah. and that meant the women were ever so much smarter than the boys. But it wasn't the thing to do to show how smart you were. It was much better that you you gave the impression that you weren't working at all, that you were a party girl. So I did my studying in various bathrooms on the campus. Then when I went back to the dormitory, I didn't have homework to do. And as if Ruth didn't have enough challenges, the only mom and only one of nine women at Harvard Law, as we just said, her husband, Marty, was then diagnosed with testicular cancer. We never thought about the possibility or never talked about the possibility that he might not survive. We were concentrating on getting him through the third year. And by the way, Marty went to classes for only two weeks, the last two weeks of the semester. In that semester, he got the highest grades that he ever got in law school because he had the best tutors. And Harvard was known as a competitive place. My experience was the opposite. His classmates, my classmates, rallied round the two of us. And he got individual tutorials to help prepare him for the exams. How did I get through it? Well, I was able to get by with very little sleep. Because of the radiation, Marty couldn't ingest anything till midnight. And so between midnight and two, we he had dinner, my bad hamburger usually, and then he would dictate to me his, his senior paper, and then he'd go back to sleep, and it was about two o'clock, then I'd take out the books and start reading what I needed to read to be prepared for classes the next day. My goodness, you can imagine that kind of a challenge, and having been through law school myself, I know what that 
first and even second year is like, and it just seems like you're overwhelmed. You're learning a new language, practically, a lot of Latin. You're learning to think in ways you've never had to think before. You're around people who are all tops in their class. You're worried about whether you're going to make it to whatever is going to happen in the summers. And then on top of that, oh, my goodness, she finds out her husband has cancer. And yet what we learned here is that love, love is very powerful. And the generosity of all these students, you know, you never know what comes from these things. And believe me, law school, like so many of these uh, graduate programs, become very and fiercely competitive. But something else was tapped because of this tragedy, because of this problem. And suddenly these seemingly, uh, the, the seeming competitors by your side were suddenly your friends and were suddenly taking you along and, and moving you along. Well, Marty graduated on time and a year earlier than Ruth. So when he got a job in New York, Ruth transferred to Columbia Law and became the first woman ever to be on two major law reviews, the Harvard Law Review and the Columbia Law Review. By the way, that just proves that adversity can be overcome. She found it a lot harder to find a job, though. She was a woman. She was Jewish. Two strikes against her. Supreme Court Justice Felix Felix Frankfurter flat out said that he wouldn't consider a woman working for him. She found academia more welcoming and first taught at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And on the side, she took up legal cases that advanced equal rights for women. And her very very first case was a rather unusual one, given her passion. Marty came into the bedroom where I worked and said, Ruth, I think you should read this decision. And my response was, Marty, you know that I don't read tax cases. He said, read this one. I did. It was the story of a man who was never married, He took care of his then 93-year-old mother, and he took what the Internal Revenue Code allowed as a babysitter's deduction, which you could take for the care of an elderly, infirm relative of any age. So he took this $600 deduction, and he was audited by the IRS, and they said, you can't take that deduction. He said, oh, I've been told that there's an elder care, just like there's a baby care. The people who qualified for the deduction were any woman or a widowed or divorced man. Charles E. Martz was a never-married man. He took his case to the tax court pro se. Meaning for himself. He represented himself, and he filed a brief which was a model. No lawyer would have done such a thing, but it was just right. He said, if I had been a dutiful daughter, I would get this deduction. I'm a dutiful son. This makes no sense. And the tax court judge, in his opinion, said, I glean that the taxpayer is making a constitutional argument. But the next words were to the effect, everyone knows that the Internal Revenue Code is immune from constitutional attack. (laughs) So as soon as I read that decision, I said, Marty, let's take it. And that's how Charles E. Moritz became our, our client. Great story. And what was Ruth Bader Ginsburg thinking in taking this case? And why would this case that was about a man slyly 
help women? I call the Morris brief the grandparent brief. First, I, I understood the likely reception to my argument, and that is gender-based discrimination, what was then called sex-based discrimination. What are you talking about? Women have the best of all possible worlds. Think of jury duty. Yes, we don't put them on the jury rolls, but if they want to serve, they can go to the clerk's office and sign up, and, and we will add them. So they don't have to serve. Women are on a pedestal. They are sheltered. They are protected. And men have to go out into the large, cold world and earn a living. The, the laws, the statutes, both state and federal, reflected that difference a good name for it is the separate spheres mentality. The sphere of earning bread, supporting the family, that was the man's world. And the women's world, women were to take care of the house and raise the children, that dichotomy. And the, and the laws were shaped to fit that. That's why any woman could get the deduction in Charles E. Moritz's case, because women, it was well known, could take care of incapacitated relatives, no matter what the age. But men, in fact, that was one of the arguments the government made in Moritz, that he hadn't proved that he was capable of taking care of his mother so that the babysitter was a substitute for himself. Women would not have to prove that, because everybody knows that women could take care of elderly parents. That's, so what we needed to show was that the image of women being on a pedestal, there was something wrong with that picture. And that, in fact, as Justice Brennan put it years later, the pedestal all too often turned out to be a cage. So it was to try to promote the understanding that these so-called protective laws, more often than not, ended up restricting what women could do, sparing men's jobs from women's competition. So how to say that in a polite way to, to get across the picture? That was, that was the challenge. And quite a challenge it was. Ruth Bader Ginsburg won that case and then co-founded the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. She continued to find it helpful to have male clients when she came before male judges and argued that laws had no business distinguishing between men and women. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment, The Life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And check out our hour on Justice Danton and Scalia, a remarkable story, a remarkable life. Justice Scalia saw the Constitution strictly, a strict constructionist, Justice Ginsburg, more of a living constitution type, one a liberal, Ginsburg, one a conservative, Scalia, dear friends, the two of them, they'd, they'd be very happy knowing Justice Scalia from heaven, Ginsburg here on earth, knowing that we're doing this segment and have done both of their stories. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our American Dreamer segment. And sometimes it's entrepreneurial stories. Many times it is. People who come here with a dream and start a business. And sometimes it's a guy who wants to be a race car driver and comes to this country with nothing and becomes the greatest race car driver of the 20th century. And I think we can say that with ease because that's what everybody in the motor sports world said about Mario Andretti. And we've done this with Justice Scalia. You couldn't rise to a higher place than he did with a law degree. And now we're doing it with Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well. Two very different people who saw the law very differently and the Constitution very differently. And by the way, we're also dear friends, which we'll get to in a bit later. She was born on this day in history in 1933. Here, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is talking about her most famous legal case from her activist period in her life. Stephen Weisenfeld's case was even more compelling than Charles E. Moritz. Stephen Weisenfeld's wife died in childbirth. She had been a school teacher. Um, she earned slightly more than he did. When she died, uh, Stephen went to the Social Security office. He thought that if he worked part-time up to the, uh, the ceiling that Social Security allowed you to earn, the Social Security benefits plus what he could earn on top of that. He could just about make it and take care of his child and not go to work full-time till the child was in school a full day. So he went to the Social Security office and asked for what he was told were child-in-care benefits. And he was told, we're very sorry, Mr. Weisenfeld. Those are mother's benefits. They're not available to fathers. So he was the person who immediately felt the effect of the law. But where did that discrimination begin? It began with the woman as wage earner. Women paid the same Social Security tax that men paid, but it didn't net for their family the same protection. Same tax, but unequal protection. So, so we could say, Stephen Weisenfeld is feeling the effect of this discrimination, but it began with his wife, the wage earner, who was not treated as a full wage earner. She was a woman wage earner, and that meant she was secondary, she was earning pin money, no Social Security benefits for her family when she dies. The case made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was the first time Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued a case before our nation's highest court. And by the way, almost no lawyers in this country ever get to experience that. I mean, less than 1%, the 1% of the 1%. And it is hard, and you're facing these nine judges, and you open up your mouth, and bam, here come the questions. You've got everything mapped out in your head, and it doesn't matter. Very stressful, very stressful for even seasoned attorneys. Well, it had to be even more stressful for a newbie. She refused to eat that first day, and that first day of the argument, and it's Supreme Court, and here's why. Because I was afraid I wouldn't hold down whatever I had. I was tremendously, terribly, terribly nervous. I had a great first sentence prepared in advance, well memorized, but I was, um, well, nervous is an understatement. <laughs> but then I had this moment when I looked up at the bench 
and thought to myself, these are the most important judges in the United States. And I have a captive audience. They have no place to go. They have to listen listen to me. And so then I switched to my teacher mode. And I told them things that they hadn't thought about, about how the, the pedestal often turns out to be a cage. You bet. Just a quick pivot and what a change it probably was for her, thinking like the teacher rather than the lawyer. How do you out-lawyer those lawyers? By the way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would argue before the Supreme Court five more times, and get this, she won five out of her six cases. She then decided she wanted to be a judge. And in 1980, President Jimmy Carter appointed her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. And by the way, that's a feeder court to the Supreme Court. Some of the greats have come from that court. And the nature of the work that comes there, it's a lot of federal appellate work as it relates to the administrative state, the EPA, the FDA, so on and so forth. In 1993, President Bill Clinton appointed her to the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court. She would be the second female justice in the court's history, and the first, Sandra Day O'Connor, would be her peer on the court. And despite them being appointees from very different political parties, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said they meant much more to each other than being merely peers. She was almost like a big sister to me. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor is a truly great woman. When I came on board, she told me just what I needed to know to be able to manage those first weeks. She didn't douse me with a whole bunch of stuff that I would uh, that I couldn't possibly ret- retain. Uh, at so many stages of my life, she gave me good counsel. When I had colorectal cancer, Sandra had had breast cancer. She had massive surgery. She was in court hearing argument nine days after her surgery. So her advice to me was, Ruth, you're having chemotherapy. Schedule it for Friday. So then by Monday, you'll be, you'll be over it. You'll be over the bad effects. That's how she was. Anything that came her way, she would deal with it. She would just do it. Then Ruth Bader Ginsburg told the What It Takes podcast about another one of the justices and another one appointed by a Republican president, the late Antonin Scalia. And she started by talking about the Virginia Military Institute ruling that declared women have to be admitted to the historically men-only school. Scalia was the only dissenter of the nine justices, and thus wrote the dissenting opinion. Ginsburg was writing the majority opinion. Scalia, her friend, did her a favor that he didn't really have to do. He came uh, into my chambers with what he said was the penultimate draft of his dissent in the VMI case. He said he wasn't quite ready to circulate it to the court and needed more polishing, but the term was getting on toward the end, and he wanted to give me as much time as he possibly could to answer his dissent. I was about to go off to my circuit judicial conference. I took the opinion draft with me. I started reading it on the plane to Albany, 
and it was even for Scalia, it was a real zinger. <laughs> it it was, and so I spent the whole weekend um, thinking about how I would, in a restrained and moderate way, answer these comments. I mean, he took me to task for everything. I had a footnote in which I referred to the Charlottesville campus of the University of Virginia. He said, we must excuse this justice who is probably more familiar with schools in New York where they may have a campus here and a campus there. There is no Charlottesville campus. There is only the University of Virginia, period. <laughs> Ginsburg was then asked if her opinion was better than Scalia's. Oh, of course, because the greatest thing for me was to have a Scalia descent. He would point out all the soft spots, and that would give me an opportunity to improve the opinion, to make it more persuasive than it was before I got this stimulating dissent. And that's the point, folks. It's not personal. Scalia always said that, too. We're just having an argument here among friends, sharpening each other's arguments, making them better, and let's go out and have a drink. When we come back, the rest of the story... Ruth Bader Ginsburg, part of our American Dreamers segment here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, our final segment. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's story. She was born on this day in history. Her friendship with Scalia, for many people who wouldn't know any better, seemed unlikely, but it was actually legendary and became the subject of an opera. And the opera was among their favorite pleasures to indulge in together. Ginsburg called them best buddies, buddies who once rode an elephant together in, in, in India and occasionally publicly debated each other, and without pulling punches. Here's a highlight from their debate at the Smithsonian. You know, I've sat with four colleagues who believed the death penalty is unconstitutional. My goodness, the death penalty was the only penalty for a felony when the Eighth Amendment, the prohibiting cruel and unusual punishments, was adopted. It was, it was the definition of a felony. A felony was a crime punishable by death. Every well, state... These justices thought, since I'm on the Supreme Court, it's up to me to decide this significant moral question because I went to Harvard Law School, maybe even Yale Law School. I must must know the answers to these questions. I I consider it an abstract question that I don't have to give the answer to. What I do know is you cannot have a death penalty that's administered with an even hand. That's the problem. Who gets the death penalty? It's a roulette wheel, and that's not a system of justice. Now, I don't think anybody would want to go back to the days where Mm. if you stole a horse, fall with your head. This is the roulette wheel amendment? This, this, the question 
and the court has said you couldn't arbitrarily administer the death penalty. You couldn't say every fourth murderer will get the death penalty. You could not have that kind of arbitrary administration of justice. Ruth, if you have a jury in criminal trials, you're going to have arbitrariness. It's the nature of a jury. One jury Isn't may be more sympathetic to the defendant than another. So you want to abolish trial by jury and have everything decided by judges who went to Harvard and Yale? It's a, who, who will likely come out the same way? <laughs> when it's a question of life or death, you can't have that kind of disparity. Well, the, the people thought you could. And I don't think it's our place to say that you can't. Yeah, but the people at one time thought that 20 lashes were okay. And we don't think that's okay. Yeah, and I think as far as the Constitution is concerned, 20 lashes are still okay. <laughs> the, the, the more ridiculous you make the example, the less likely it is to occur. Because the people have changed. They have made the decision to change. It hasn't been imposed on them by... Uh, by a Supreme Court. Anyway. By the way, Justice almost always won these arguments head-to-head. It was fascinating. I saw one at Georgetown where the audience was preconceived. I think their notions were those with Ginsburg, but they'd never heard the Scalia argument the way Scalia does it. And he sort of just takes apart her arguments. There's just not much there. But they loved each other. You could tell. She wasn't offended that he was going after her argument. He wasn't offended at her. They were just going at it. And I think Scalia ate her lunch in that one. But again, other people listening might be thinking, oh, Lee, you're just so ridiculous. By the way, we don't do that kind of show. Thank goodness. I go to turn on talk, you know, your typical talkers for that. You know, they, they come on before us, after us, and that's, they do that beautifully. That's not what we do here. But that was just an example of how those two would go out in the public together and yet then go off and play poker and go to the opera together as well. And that's a fundamental part of the American character that I think we've lost. That we're allowed to just have an argument and then let, let's forget that and go on and do other things. We're going to close with some clips of Ruth Bader Ginsburg talking about her marriage to Marty because this was the most important part of her life. And he was a master chef, a master tax lawyer, and the biggest booster of his wife. Marty was always, always my biggest booster. Um. He was a remarkable man. He was so um, sure of his own ability that he never regarded me as any kind of threat. Uh, On the contrary, I suppose he thought, well, if I decided to, I wanted to spend my life with her, she must be pretty good. So so he he was at every stage of my life my, my strongest supporter. Marty contracted cancer and in 2010 was near death. And his bride, Ruth, well, she found something unexpected. I found this letter in the drawer of the stand next to Marty's bed in the hospital. When we knew it was the end and I was taking him home so that he could die at home rather than in the hospital... Um, I was just checking to see that we had everything he brought with him. And on a yellow pad, there was a letter to me. And it reads, My dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have loved in my life, setting aside a bit parents and kids and their kids. 
and I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell some 56 years ago. It was wrong about 56. It was nearly 60 years. We were married for 56 years. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. I will be in Johns Hopkins Medical Center until Friday, June 25th, I believe. And between then and now, I shall think hard on my remaining health and life and consider on balance the time has come for me to toughen out or to take leave of life because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you a job less. And just sign Marty. On June 27, 2010, Marty passed from this earth. And on the very next day, Ruth was at the Supreme Court on the bench announcing an important decision that she wrote. But she didn't have to be there. Someone could have announced the decision for her. The Chief Justice could have announced the decision. But I remembered to... um, my pancreatic cancer surgery. I was home and recuperating for about two weeks while the court was not sitting. And then the court went back to sit. And I I told Monia, I can't do this. I won't be able to sit still for two hours listening to arguments. And he said, yes, you will. And it it was because of the strength that he gave me that I showed up in court that morning. And I think, and miraculously, I was able to sit still. So I thought, what would Marty want me to do? And that's why I came to the court and and read the summary of my decision from the bench. What would Marty want me to do? A couple of things Ruth Bader, Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has written over the years. Here was something she wrote about the time she was rejected by a law firm that was looking for its token woman and had hired one. Check that box off back then. She said this, and it tells you a lot about the nature of her character. You think about what would have happened. Suppose I had gotten a job as a permanent associate at a law firm. Probably I would have climbed up the ladder, and today... I would be a retired partner. So often in life, things that you regard as an impediment turn out to be great good fortune. She says this about having it all. I just read Anne Marie Slaughter's book. She talked about, we don't have it all. Who does? I've had it all in the course of my life, but at different times. It bothers me when people say to make it to the top of the tree, you have to give up a family. Her husband, Marty, told the New York Times, quote, I've been supportive of my wife since the beginning of time, and Ruth has been supportive of me. 
That's not sacrifice. That's family. And last but not least, on the work-life balance, my work-life balance was a term not yet coined in the years my children were young. It is aptly descriptive of the time distribution I experienced. My success in law school, I have no doubt, was in large measure because of baby Jane. I attended classes and studied diligently until four in the afternoon. The next hours were Jane's time, spent at the park, playing silly games or singing funny songs, reading picture books and A.A. Milne poems, and bathing and feeding her. After Jane's bedtime, I returned to the law books with renewed will. Each part of my life provided respite from the other and gave me a sense of proportion that my classmates, my childless classmates, I think she was saying here specifically, trained only on law studies lacked. It was an advantage, she said, to have that child in law school. Again, it's all a matter of your mind and what you do with these things. And my goodness, there's no doubt in my mind that that is true, what, what Judge Ginsburg was saying. I was a law student. If I had had a child, I know I would have been a better and more focused law student. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. A great life, a life well lived. <laughs> 